This is the EP Growth Podcast from Hunter Rehabilitation and Health. We are here to grow the exercise physiology profession through supporting the professional and personal growth of young EPs in the industry. Welcome back to the EP Growth Podcast. I'm Chris. I'll be your host today. And I'm joined by Connor Gleehill, physiotherapist extraordinaire, researcher. How are you, Connor? i'm well chris how are you going <laughs> good mate look let me let me introduce you to the to the listeners if they're if they're not aware but uh connor you've graduated as a physiotherapist with honors that's back in the day now and then you've moved on to become clinician researcher phd candidate you're a lecturer at uh, university of newcastle uh, you've worked with various professional sporting teams uh, you've opened and run your own clinics i say clinics because it's been two now i think is that right that's right, <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. right. And uh, you've also been leading a statewide health and wellbeing program for the New South Wales Police. So, mate, what are you doing your day off? You, you, you're a busy guy. Uh, and well, I mean, yeah. So the police work was—it uh, feels like many moons ago. Now that feels like a previous lifetime. Um, since that, I've been a clinician researcher, and I've just moved into uh, a, a role with the Department of Health and Aged Care. So. Um, yeah. Yes, as you probably very accurately uh, described there, it's been varied. And um, I now feel, as you're talking, reflecting back on all of it, it it's it's really useful in my current role. Um, but it does sound like a, a lot, actually. <laughs> I'm very yeah. keen to, um, you know, I guess just start to build after this PhD has now finished and just uh, and it just start to build into uh, the line of research that I want to do and really help out in uh, the role that I hold for my day job, which is, you know, try to really improve primary care. So, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, similar to you, like I've known of you and known you for a little while, but then you sort of sit down ready for the podcast and I'll just sort of prepare a little bit of a bio and then you read it all and you're like, hey, he's across a lot of things, but... Uh, you touched on it yourself. I think that sets you up really nicely for what you're doing now. You can sort of, uh, from the research point of view and then from a practice point of view, you, you really sort of can understand things from multiple points of view. So it's a, a pleasure to have you on today, mate. But for the the podcast, I think today we're going to try and focus a little bit more on the research elements and and how that can apply to, to the clinical day-to-day for practitioners. Obviously, we're EP-based here, but your background's in physio and, and a lot of this stuff can apply, I'd suggest, across all our health fields is that you think that as well absolutely absolutely yeah and that's the that's the goal and i think that's always been my mindset um you know i'm I probably um stopped calling myself a, a physio except in certain circumstances uh a while ago and you know i i am an allied health primary care clinician researcher slash um policy uh professional so <laughs> i think that's cool as well i think as soon as you start to put a title or a label on it it's uh it can have impacts in other ways i think at the moment there's various turf wars and whatnot going on which is that's another conversation but i think sort of one of the things we can sort of speak to is if everyone's sort of uh, working with the, the best research they have available and and with the patient's best interest in mind is probably going to be doing similar things at the end of the day but i think we'll wander through that in today's chat but uh, let's take me back to the start, mate. Like, how, where did the desire to get involved in research come from? Obviously, started as sort of practice based, and then moving into research. Really good question, and it's it's 
always it's always been there you know since early days in university to be honest i mean i grew up in a very medical household so you know there was always an element of understanding that it's important on some level but i think then i've got a bit of a basic science brain that's always been my core where i get my core uh, intellectual enjoyment and you know basic science and research go together very well and um so i started you know second year of uni just helping out on people's research projects and doing a bit of teaching and um then built from there and after I graduated, uh, I was still doing research assistant roles. Um, and then life got pretty busy, so I stopped for a few years. But then, as I was saying, uh, and then I finished up with the police and I, and I really went headlong into, you know, what do I really enjoy? And that was when I started being a clinician researcher. And, um, you know, I've been doing that since. And so that's been a clinician researcher, I've probably been a clinician researcher properly, you know, in a paid sense for half of my professional career. So uh, mm-hmm. it's always been there. And I think mixing the two is difficult, but it's very important. And like we'll probably get to, there's many levels to the way you can mix both research and practice. And, um, you know, not one way is not the right way for everyone. So I've just done it, uh, tried to really um, do them both work in a work sense of be paid to do them both for half of my professional life now. So it's, uh, it's enjoyable. Yeah, I think it well, it sounds like you've you've always had the sort of well, I think I might be interested in that. And then you've explored it, willing to be a bit of a generalist or sort of touch base in a, in a couple of different areas. And then as you've worked out, I like this, really start to pursue it in that way. Uh, which is great. And I think there's, there's something in that for people listening is like when you're at uni, as you said, like try it, go and do a little bit of research or help out with various projects that are available. And if you find that you like it, well then as you have done, you can pursue both. If you really want to, you can make that work. But um, one of the things that I'm, I'm curious on is how did the PhD work out? Bring us up to date. What were you doing your PhD in and, and where are you up to with all of that? Oh, great. Okay. So my, my research has been in, trying to get research into practice um, better and trying to improve the impact of research and specifically my interest as a physiotherapist. And, you know, as you said, uh, I've run a couple of businesses, I've established a couple of businesses and as a private practice physiotherapist, you traditionally, you know, predominantly will be in musculoskeletal care. And that's what I have Done, and that's what my business and my clinical practice is really focused on. So my research has been on trying to improve the translation and impact of research, uh, musculoskeletal research into practice. And really what that looks like has been um, looking at some of the different gaps in the translation pipeline um, from research being generated. Um, there's some issues with how it's generated typically and Sure, we'll get into that. But then there are also issues along that pipeline. So how it gets communicated and and then there, you know, is all of these factors that make it really difficult to, um, as professional practice and they go through their behaviours in, you know, day-to-day life, clinical life, 
there are all those behaviors um, that are shaped by these different factors. Um, and so at that very behavioral end as well, there are a lot of issues and gaps to um, look at and to try to improve, to improve the translation of evidence into practice. Um, and then, you know, I think uh, there's a, a big part of my life now is really devoted to trying to improve things on a, on a system level and in that policy level. Uh, but again, I think if we stick to probably the, the research and the um, how that relates to my PhD, it's a, it's a good start. Yeah. Yeah. It's a huge area. I think it's very, very valuable. I, I think most people can say they've probably been, you know, I'll look up some research and then you I'm looking for this sort of thing over here and you're wading through some stuff that's not necessarily relevant. And I mean, the, the obvious question I want to ask you is what are the, what are the main things you've found in this PhD, which we could be here for the next couple of hours to talk about, but if there was one or two things that you've found that are probably barriers within um, clinicians accessing quality research, what would you say that they have been? Uh, and, and if you've got one or two things that you think are going to make a big difference in improving that. Yeah, this is a great one. So, you know, as you say, it is hard to boil it down to, yeah. you know, a few key takeaways, um, but I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, I think there is this separation between research and clinical practice that um, is very wide. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, researchers uh, don't typically really have a good grasp of what it is like in clinical practice. And, you know, there, there are good clinician researchers, but they're actually quite rare. There's good reason for that, though, because being a good researcher is really hard and it it's a full-time job, you yeah. know. And um, so it's it's really hard to, to be a clinician researcher. There are only a few of them. Um, but that being said, there's this separation between clinicians working in clinic and, and researchers working in a lab or in at a university. And I think that's a, that's a, that's low hanging fruit. So, and uh, the, the old, uh, you know, simple, but very hard solution is to just try to bring those worlds together a little bit more. And, you know, I think one of the big parts of my research has been to establish a network to bring those worlds together a bit more. And um, it's been incredibly successful, but maybe going back to the intro, it has really revolved around physiotherapists and um, predominantly physiotherapists, although we're branching out now. And I, and I think um, one of the next steps, so the exciting things to that is, I'd love to see it just widen and extend out to all allied health and, you know, if I had a vision for healthcare, primary care in the next 20 years, it's that we do have more of these networks um, within allied health. And they are, they really just function as learning health networks that actually, you know, really bring the world, the worlds of research and practice together. And, you know, it's this just really simple learning or, you know, um, close-knit learning network as as you know you, you generate research and it's immediately kind of applied within the network and um so i'll go back to some other gaps um i think one of the other really simple low-hanging fruits i said, keep saying low-hanging fruit but um this comes down to researchers behavior which is again behavior is very complex um but it's around communicating research and 
I think something that uh, has been part of my training has been in um, causal inference. So what that means is um, for the purposes of this conversation, really not being afraid to um, talk about cause and effect. And I think um, we do it innately as humans and in research, researchers have been trained to avoid talking about cause and effect. And it really causes all of this confusion when people are reading through, say, the statistics section of the, um, you know, uh, manuscript in front of you. And if we could just get researchers to speak plainly and speak their intent as to what they're trying to do, most of the time it is actually understand cause and effect and what works. Um, that's low-hanging fruit, but that involves trying to change research behavior and all these ingrained practices, a lot like clinical practice. So those are two simple barriers because I think one of the big ones, the big buckets of um, areas that I looked at was in this world of clinical practice behavior. Um, and I probably can't give, you know, like a very simple barrier there. There's lots of different barriers uh, to clinical practice research implementation. Um, I think that's one of the main points that there is, is that it's so complex, right? That's it's getting that one answer is, is complex, but as you've touched on the low hanging fruit fruit, at least let's start there because I think those two things are, are really important. Um, yeah, one of the ones about, um, researchers behavior and how they're presenting their their findings i get that when i read it you sort of like, i feel like you want to say something here but you're not willing to say it for whatever reason uh and i'm sure there are many and, and very valid reasons but to the point now that there's there's various ai uh, programs software available that will take research articles and try to like here's what it's saying like almost dumbs it down so it is it is readable uh, and yeah. flicking through some of the, the um, various research you've done in the past on barriers to people using evidence-based practices, like time to go and find the, the research and then decipher it and then implement it. Like if it's too, like I've got to find it. And then once it's there in front of me, I've got to try and what does this even say? Like that is a barrier. So I think, um, yeah, certainly that is, is going to be something beneficial. Yeah. Bang on. Love that. And, and I think then as we move into this world of, what it is like to be a clinician and really try to consume access, uh, access, consume and critically appraise and then and then apply all of this research. Yeah. Um, it, to your point, you know, you can't make more time. So if yeah, if researchers can speak more plainly and just be very clear in what they're trying to do and how they've gone about it, um, yet that would make everyone's life a lot easier. Um, but, you know, I think then you get into a lot of the, the scientific articles um, that you read. Uh, this is this established way of communicating in, um, in science. Yeah. And there's a place for that, right? So that's so that other scientists can, can see whether something is rigorous or not. The, one of the big thing problems that we've found in my research has been, you know, that there's just this, and this is not news to anyone, there's just this avalanche of ever-increasing amount of research. And now that 
you know, traditional way of communicating with other scientists, it it doesn't make sense on this volume of information level for clinicians because you need a way to quickly figure out what's going on and what have people done and how does it apply to my, you know, patients um, and, you know, what do I do with all of this information? But then it also doesn't really make sense from a, um, I guess, a, you know, another aspect of, uh, you know, research, which is in researchers talking to other researchers. And, um, you know, I think it's getting a little bit, um, it's, it's getting to the point where this traditional way of talking to other scientists uh, probably does need to, you know, evolve as well because it's just becoming, I guess, untenable yeah. um, for researchers, but also for clinicians. Yeah, and like that's we can also, as as clinicians, take some responsibility here. And I think the we'll get to this shortly, but the the network that you're developing, or well, certainly have a part of developing, is is going to allow both these groups of people to talk to each other and, and like what are the issues that each of us have here and come to a, a solution and, and and make sure we're understanding each other. But uh, yeah, like researchers can work on that on that communication side of things, but then also clinicians, like if you're not sure of what that language between researchers is, like, well, then we have an, uh, an avenue where we can ask that now, which probably hasn't existed in the past. And I think, yeah, that's going to be super beneficial. And I don't want to get there too quickly, but I want to talk about like, yeah, your, your plans for expansion of that network into the future. Cause I, I do think it's super valuable. It's uh, instead of just like, Oh yeah, I've done some CPD. I've, I've read some articles. You could go along to one of these meetings and then understand what is happening as opposed to just reading something. I think that would be hugely valuable. That's that's perfect, Chris. I mean, that if, if, if it's conceptualized in that way, the network simply is another line of communication, you know, and to transfer information from people doing research um, or, you know, people that are have more time and interest than others to really delve into the research. And, um, yeah, it's just opening up more lines of communication. But yeah, because there are lots of other barriers to accessing journal articles um, in the traditional way, as we know, paywalls, um, beyond just it being fairly obtuse a lot of the time and, and opaque into as to how it's written and, and the length of it and the time it takes to, to you know, understand it. So um, bang on. If, uh, if it's just conceptualized as another, a network is another line of communication to transfer information, it's really worthwhile. Yeah, abs absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Uh, look, one of the things I think we're we're both sort of passionate about. It's certainly topical for for both of us in, in what we do. Um, topical everywhere, really, in healthcare. But pain, chronic pain, it's a it's a huge thing. Uh, and one of the things that I've noted you've talked about is, yeah, you know, we know that exercise works, but we don't know why it works. Can you can you speak more to that, and then sort of. Yeah, what are we doing in regards to, to research about that? And yeah, unpack that a little bit. Oh, we need, another, I mean, it's, it's we need another podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's 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 really good. Um, it's a very important question. And um, so my caveat here is that some of my research loosely involves uh, this idea, um, but there are other researchers that 
I think, you know, would be much better place than I to, to really delve into this. Um, so I can give the, I guess, bare oh. bones um, stuff behind this. Uh, I think uh, there are maybe two key areas to consider um, when we're talking about exercise and pain. And, and one of them is the way we have to run trials of exercise. Um, and that's that there isn't really a good placebo-controlled uh, uh, way to set up an exercise trial. Either you're doing exercise or you're not. Um, yeah. You know, you, you're you're doing a lot of the things that, um, no matter if it's you know, if it's a different form of exercise as another arm of your trial, you're still doing a lot of the things that potentially could be creating the effect of exercise. Um, and, you know, those are things that I think any switched on clinician really thinks about when they're getting their patient to exercise. And that's, you know, um, involving the, and I don't want to get dualist here, but uh, for the purposes of, of this point, I think it's important, but uh, we all know uh, it is all one. But, you know, you're involving the brain and the body in doing exercise and, and the treatment of exercise. And, you know, so, um, you know, you're working on all the, the psychological aspects that we have a really good grasp of um, in mechanistic research and mechanistic understanding of treatments, which has been where I've done research. Um, we have a really good understanding of how these um, causal pathways, so these mechanisms work in, uh, in a psychological sense, um, because we have good questionnaires and we, and we can measure them well. Um, but a lot of those uh, really haven't been um, well, uh, well established within exercise trials as yet. So now we're getting into the second main idea as to um, why we don't know high exercise really works for pain um very much uh information yet beyond we know that it kind of works right it works um so the one number one is it's the way trials are set up it's really hard to actually determine like a really true effect of a specific kind of exercise because you can't really have a placebo arm and the second main idea is that um the mechanisms um, aren't that well understood beyond um, some of the transferability of other kinds of treatments uh, from trials um, that have been applied to most exercise research. So there's in that, I mean, causal mediation analysis have been, there's been a few in um, uh, exercise trials, but not a lot. And most of the causal uh, mediation analyses that really let, helps us understand what exact factors have caused this effect to work. And that's important because then clinicians can really target those ideas, right? Mm. This is why things like self-efficacy um, and fear avoidance have become quite important in practice because they jump out when we look at uh, the effect of trials in uh, mediation analysis, we split the effect up. 
these factors like self-efficacy and, and, you know, fear avoidance and um, other major psychological constructs, they jump out as causing the effect. The important thing, though, to note is that a lot of these mediation analysis haven't been applied to exercise trials very much. They've mainly been applied in these um, cognitive behavioral trials uh, or you know, cognitive, um, like mind, uh, mainly psychologically focused treatments in uh, low back pain is my, my field of expertise. Um, so that's a one small part of pain in general. Um, but it's a good thing. It's actually a pretty safe um, generalized statement for most of pain and chronic pain that we haven't done the work to um, split up the effect and do a mediation analysis in exercise trials beyond a couple of big ones um, for painful conditions. And, and, you know, that needs to be done to really understand um, how exercise works for pain. Um, Just, one of the, yeah, go for it. Yeah, there's such an important point in and where I keep coming back to having forums where that sort of thing can be discussed, not just even amongst researchers, but clinicians, but amongst amongst all key stakeholders of health or providers of health or people, let's call it insurance companies as well, that will fund health is so important because decisions are being made about what is the, the best case care for a person or where should a person's health journey begin based on you know what we deem to be evidence-based and we're still really unpacking that and, and how that works like how is that outcome being achieved is it was it from the exercise or was it some other um, tangible thing that's being listed in that experience that maybe or may not be exercise we're still not sure on that but we're getting an outcome but then we then we're coming back and having conversations about um okay well this is evidence-based practice that in some cases we can say that and in other cases we're, we're not there yet and i think that's it's such a big area, but it causes all sorts of issues at the same time. Um, and and it's, it's not going to get solved in this podcast today, but I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to speak to and is, is support are more areas or more avenues to have these conversations so we can be better across this, uh, across all stakeholders in health. Like what is evidence-based care and, and getting towards the best sort of solution for this person? It's, it's complex. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more with that. And, you know, on on actually a few levels there that one, I think we're so far away from, you know, the other stakeholders in care really having a grasp of this concept mm. that, you know, so funders really, they they are stuck in, I guess, this black box way of thinking, which I think comes, I do want to address that, but it's still important to, to provide evidence-based care in the idea of if it has been proven effective yeah. in, you know, really like good, well-designed trials, that is the still the top level of evidence that we would need in healthcare. But then, um, I think trying to get this point across to other stakeholders, we're, we're so far from that, but it is important because then you get into this idea that, well, is it, you know, is it the exercise physiologist um, doing 
exercise and targeting this mediator very well? Um, or, you know, is it the surgeon that actually their surgery targeted this mediator as well and they got these extra effects from, you know, if any surgeons listen to your podcast, podcast Chris, um, you know, hopefully this is not, you know, too, too derogatory, but so, is it the extra <laughs> effects from, you know, being put under and going through the rigmarole of um, having a wound that you you can see and that you have this, you know, sense that I get this strength from this new bit of tissue or something that they sewed up or that they put in my body. Um, you know, these are things that are important to understand and we're, we're really far away from that. But, you know, I think um, this talk about shared mediators and shared causal pathways it's very exciting and it's hard not to get too excited about it. Um, but it does hold promise to really bring us together a bit more, which, um, yeah, I mean, that's exciting for me that, you know, what you do successfully could be very, very similar to what a surgeon does successfully. It's just, they have, you know, a different tool, tool belt to, to get there. Exactly. Um, so yeah. We, yeah. Yeah. One of, yeah. One of the things like I, I've not put massive amounts of thought into this but like yeah in the future if uh let's say it was a, a referral to a an allied health practitioner or a surgeon or, or whatever it was going to be the referral is based on um that factor that generates change rather than your title so you could have a, a physiotherapist that can elicit this response as could a chiro as could an ep it's it's not your title but it's what you are able to elicit through whatever means that's what you're after. And I think we get caught up in this um, battle of titles and, and egos for sure, where it's it's not the point at the end of the day, I don't think sometimes. But anyway, it's probably another podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Let's schedule another one for that conversation. I'm very excited by that, that concept. And I think a lot of people are, my caveat, you know, um, the risk here is that we're over-promising with, the methods that we can get there, you know, causal mediation analysis, it, it is one way of trying to get at this idea of what are the what are the causal pathways. Um, but, you know, it's not a panacea, I don't think. And yeah, as as you probably as everyone knows that would listen to your podcast, there's a lot of stuff that goes into um, you know, the different professions and I'm trying to make them all, trying to make us all homogenous. It's so exciting for me, but there is also, you know, there's a reason why there are different professions as well. So yeah, of course. there's nuance, nuance to everything. Of course, there'd be people listening, um, just screaming, pulling their hair out, but that's fine. We're, it's about having the conversation, isn't it? Yeah. With, with all that considered, I mean, here's, a, here's another big one for you, I suppose, but what would you consider to be high value healthcare at the moment? Okay, so this is another big one that we need another podcast for. But um, <laughs> all the big ones today, mate. Yeah, this is this has been a uh, significant part of my research. Has you know been looking at this idea of value in in healthcare, particularly you know musculoskeletal care, one of the you know biggest burdens we live with as a society. Yeah, I think that comes from my history, uh, my professional history of running businesses and, and understanding 
you know, maybe having this intrinsic understanding of, of value. Um, but then when I looked into it in a research sense, there, there's actually a lot more to value than we, I think, intuitively think, and certainly more than um, than we would, you know, read in policy documents. So um, this work on high value care actually stemmed from the research. So it turns out that a lot of people in practice have these same thoughts that I did that you know, we, we don't, we talk about value a lot, but we don't actually really know what it means. And, and what I, what I did uh, in my research was we had a look at the literature. So we reviewed the literature, but then we went through a process of asking network members. So again, as a predominantly physiotherapist practicing in private practice, what do you think, of, what do you think about value and what is it like to apply high value care in your practice? Um, and then we uh, came to a consensus. So we had this kind of three-step process. What it turns out is uh, that there are there are some really um, evidence-based ideas and aspects and themes to, to value. Um, and we split them up into four domains of value, but that one of those domains is quality. And quality in and of itself is made up of these seven uh, themes. Um, and if you can, Chris, uh, if you can link our work on this in the show notes, that would be great. Um, value comes down to being cost effective. Um, and this is this traditional way that I think evidence and, and policy documents talk about value. It really is that simple ratio of does the cost for care outweigh the outcomes uh, that you get. And obviously that means that you really need to measure your outcomes well, but they need to be patient-centered. They need to really revolve around a patient. But then there is this idea of uh, value being adherent to patient values. Um, and that's an important one that again, um, we can't really have a one number that uh, describes value yeah. because patients are, you know, all individual. They all have, we all have our own values and, and beliefs. And, and value is this, annoyingly for me, because I've devoted a big portion of my research life to it, value is this really difficult to pin down concept when you think about it in that way. Um, in that it has to adhere to patient values, but everyone's values are very different. But if we just put it in that broad broad bucket of it has to adhere to patient values, we need to understand what those are. Um, that's low hanging fruit there. But and I, then I think one of the other big yeah, go for it, go Chris. No, 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 no finish your point, mate. That's uh, one of the big domains of um, value is reducing waste. So really reducing the the low value stuff, reducing the stuff that we know has really no effect, um, effectiveness, like proven effectiveness, and or it's uh, much too expensive to warrant any small effect um, to, you know, to, to deliver. So reducing that stuff is a big part of mm. value. And then you get into quality care uh, that really is well described in... 
um, health service sense. Um, and the health services really define this in like seven nice themes. Um, it's got obviously got to be evidence-based. That's that's key, right? Um, always is. But it also has to be connected. Uh, there's an idea of it being safe, which is pretty simple. Uh, but when you kind of think about it in an intuitive sense, these themes don't really pop up, but they do when you think a bit deeper. Um, safe and timely and equitable. So these kinds of themes come into this idea of care quality. Uh, and then we had a process where uh, we asked practicing clinicians, what would you add? And we actually added a couple of important themes to that. Um, bearing in mind though, that this is just a one group of physiotherapists. And the next step for all of this is really to go to patients and go to more professionals and see what their thoughts are around value. And, um, and then, you know, 10, 20 years, we're hopefully uh, having a conversation around quantifying this a bit better. Um, that the additional themes for clinicians were around being accountable to your standard of care. And I think that's quite an important one for practicing clinicians, especially in private practice. Allied health clinicians don't have this accountability baked into their training and into our practice um, very well beyond, uh, you know, having to be registered and just demonstrate registration a lot of the time. Um, then we have this idea of effective care. And we definitely need another podcast to talk about effective care, the theme of effective care. But really, um, in a nutshell, it's something separate uh, in the ideas of clinicians, something separate to evidence-based care, which is much more about the way you deliver evidence-based care and you know, your communication and, and um, perhaps some of your treatment uh, you know, delivery. Um, that may be uh, adhering to this theme of effective care rather than actually being this well-described theme that's evidence-based. One of my ideas for research is just to see whether people think that this is a real phenomenon, that there might be something else mm. other than the traditional description of, of evidence-based care um, that adds to value, but also adds to this idea of a better outcome. Well, to me at the moment, it, it sounds like, yeah, the key points, value is different things to different people and in, in what context we need to consider that. And then so in terms of I'm going to provide high value care for as an EP or a physiotherapist, like that's that's not there because it can't be because it's different all the time. So it sounds to me like yeah, the best place that you should start is with a conversation with the person that's in front of you and understanding expectations on both sides of the fence. And sort of like, yeah, hey, Connor, what, what do you want and expect from me? Like is is high value for you get me free injury duties tomorrow. Like I don't care how you do it, but it needs to happen tomorrow. That's high value care. Or is it, are they expecting something else? Um, because, and, and this matters how we, how we get through this, because then we get onto a, try, try not to uh, stumble down this rabbit hole too much today, but um, things like over-servicing, 
like what is over-servicing? And that's going to be dependent on all these other factors that we've just mentioned. And then external influences, um, like if there's an external funder of this, of this treatment, what do they envisage is high-value care and appropriate and where should we be up to? So I think uh, whilst, whilst people like you, the researchers, are, are going through all the modelling and working out, yeah, what, what is our objective metric for uh, high-value care? I think the, the place to start is with open conversations with key stakeholders and making sure everyone's on the same page with what could you do that you would do to get the ideal outcome. Oh, this is... That's fantastic. And yes, that's absolutely something we describe in, in our in our work in this manuscript in this article. And and you've hit the nail on the head that we I often I feel like we did all of this work to arrive at a really, really obvious point that high value care it starts with an you know, importantly starts and ends with the patient. Yeah. And it really does uh, involve having a conversation about them around their, you know, their ideal outcome. But to your point that there are other stakeholders involved that create a care outcome and that we need to be mindful of all of those stakeholders' uh, perspectives and, and, and their, their effect on the outcome as well. So um, it's it is a it's a simple thing to say, but what I find from thinking about value over many years is that you, you can make it this ratio that you know cost versus outcome. But that has that's that's not that translatable into you know, practice certainly not very easily translatable for the practicing clinician. And um, it doesn't mean much in terms of my current work, we're asking patients, you know, like what, what does this idea of value mean to you? It doesn't mean much to them either. So mm-hmm. there's more work to be done. Value is really important, but uh, it's just so, it's very hard to get a handle on. Um, so, um, you know, I feel like I've chosen a, bad research uh, agenda. Well, there's certainly lots for you to do. (laughs) Yeah. Have you you stumbled across yet within your research as far as um, sort of beginning levels of understanding of what patients do want or what they don't want? Yeah. I mean, this is is well-trodden ground that certain in this line of research, I and you know my colleagues and um, you know my team I'm working with we're we're not the first people to talk to talk to patients about what they want. There's lots of research out there about that and and ongoing and great stuff coming out every minute. Um, you know and and these are things that again switched on clinician will have a handle on. You know it's things like good strong communication. Um, you know, uh, understanding that there are certain expectations to um, at least, and this is a key point, meeting expectations we think is important, but it's not the only thing to in, to a good outcome. And, and I think this is a point we've tried to make in, in our work that there is more to 
high value care. There's certainly more to evidence-based care than just meeting expectations. It And to use your words, it really does involve a conversation. And we think that's, you know, a bi-directional flow of information that, you know, you, you're learning from each other to, to get the outcome that is best. Um, and again, that, that's a conversation to really figure out the best outcome. Um, you know, these expectations in the literature, traditionally things like people need a clear, uh, clear information around their diagnosis, around uh, what we think is going on, um, their prognosis. They want information about that. But in our field, again, in pain, it's very hard to really nail down that with any certainty um, a lot of the time. That makes our job harder. Um, but again, I think what comes back to, what this comes back to is if it is a, a, a two-way flow of information that is you know, consistent and, and open, then you can get to the point where someone may understand that you can't say exactly what's going on down to the, the exact structure or the exact tissue, um, nor it may be possible that you can say exactly when you're going to get back to X, Y, Z. Um, but if they know that there is a framework that uh, you're working to the same goal, then that is valuable. No. Um, and then I think within the literature, the other key things is to, you know, um, give give information that is easily understood in, you know, these things and evolving research out of some great people in Sydney that, you know, saying that um, uh, the way you communicate actually does have an effect and there are, you know, um, negative effects to delivering information in certain ways so i think that's such a a gold bit of information right there and, and younger less experienced practitioners to experienced practitioners can really take that on and consider that and reflect on how do i actually go about that at the moment and can i make improvements in how i'm communicating uh you know you, you can see it sometimes in um practitioner notes and whatnot where the first the first initial consult it's sort of majority of it is physical assessments and we're, we're away, we're into it. And it's like, it would be so much more valuable to spend a bit more time the first session, even into the second session, third session, if you need to, with, with understanding each other and building rapport. Sure, like there comes a point where you need to be prescribing something. Uh, they're coming to you for that at some point. But uh, are, are we both understanding each other here? Are we, are we in alignment on what's happening here? Like that stuff is so valuable. Couldn't agree more. And my ultimate trial, uh, you know, so one of my ultimate trials would be just to um, just to measure the effect of different lengths of time of listening. I mean, that's a very simple trial to do, right? Um, you know, your control arm is a certain amount of time listening, and then your other intervention arms are just listening for longer. <laughs> um, and seeing the effect of that is uh would would be great there's no such trial so um yeah these these things are important watch this space mm -hmm. all right mate very good we're, we're sort of covering some massive topics today and, and 
I think we've both said there's opportunity for, for further chats in the future. So we'll, we'll stick to that. But one of the big ones you touched on earlier was uh, researching practice network. So Ripon, um, it's physiotherapy based at the moment, but it's a network where researchers and practitioners are able to have conversations and bring both those worlds together. And you said you're looking at and ideally would like to expand that across different fields into the future bring us up to speed. What are the plans there? Cause I think it's hugely valuable. I'd love to see it. I think it would be just so beneficial. Yeah. Quick plug. Uh, Ripon research and practice network is a, you know, th this is a, a local network as it stands within uh, Newcastle, Lake Macquarie, Hunter that um, really exists to uh, bring research into practice. Hence its name. <laughs> um, we, we have, we have, produced a bit of research um, and now I think one, one of you know my my big call outs is that I I led the establishment of this network but it certainly is uh, a, has been a hugely collaborative effort so um, you know if people want to get involved uh, I think there are people like Nikki Manville or um, Steph Hodgson so there are two chair um, people. And they're key contacts for anyone who wants to get involved, but also get 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 online and just look uh, for Research and Practice Network on uh, on all your social media pipes. Um, one of the key things that we we're I guess strategically um, transitioning towards is different ways of engaging, you know, um, clinicians in bringing research into practice. And so far, that's looked like you know, these really multidisciplinary case evenings and education evenings. And I mean, I think it's hard to um, not describe this in a way that sounds like we're just running education evenings. I think there is part of that. So there is some education involved. But one of the key things from my end is we're the intent is to really zero in on bringing research into practice within those evenings and having this, I guess, multidisciplinary um, viewpoint on the research um, that, you know, is specific to certain conditions. And so that's been this nice strategic change in the last year that um, it's going to continue in that vein. And if anyone is interested in that, just get in contact. Um, one of the, I think, future directions, as I said before, is to talk to anyone who is interested about broadening the the lens to this and, and perhaps more and, and, and future different networks involving different clinicians. And I think for me, it, that, that has legs in that it can go places, it can go into different areas of Australia, but it can also yeah, sprout and grow in to EP, uh, to, you know, Cairo. And I think bringing this network concept to other professionals and professional groups is important because it um, it's not just talking about research, it's bringing people together has also one of the big aspects of why the network has been very successful in physiotherapy. Um, that, you know, people want to network as well as talk about research. And in combining the two, it's uh, 
it's been very good. And we're doing work at the moment to kind of understand what have the exact impacts of that been. Uh, and we'll hopefully be able to talk about that in, you know, a year or, or so. Yeah, it's definitely exciting, mate. And we'll get a few of those links and names in the uh, in the show notes so people can find that nice and easily. But um, before we sort of wrap up today, mate, what's what's the plans for 2024? What's coming up? Really good question. Some uh, a bit of a break, yeah. and um, then I'm really keen to, as I said, I mean my my day job now is is not so much um, research, but um, you know, so my my day job is to apply my, my skills and 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 um, my lived experience and research experience in primary care to improve primary care. So that's very cool to think about in 2024. Uh, in a research sense, um, we're going to keep working along the you know lines of um, let's really understand value a bit better. Um, and then I think uh, one of the big ones for me is to um, work with network members to really get to a point where we can have a learning platform. Um, and, and that's exciting because yeah, I think everyone talks about, you know, data and sharing data as this big, powerful tool. And it is, but there are lots of steps to get there. And um, I think when, now that we've thought about it for a few years, we really understand the depth of uh, this, the steps and the depth of work that need to go into actually even starting to like think about sharing data. So that's what's next in 2024. Um, so hopefully in 2025, I'm talking to you and we're, we're talking about the learning health network that uh, we've been able to, you know, established within the research and practice network. So that's exciting. Hey, that is very exciting. And I hope we are. I'll, I'll be uh, lining you up for another chat to see where we're at. But uh, mate, it's been a pleasure to have you on today. We've, we've spoken, I think, briefly on what are some very, very big topics and uh, certainly topics moving forward in healthcare in general. So I appreciate you making time and yeah, keen to, to go over this again in the future, possibly in, in more detail in certain areas. But uh, for now, mate, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, any parting thoughts before you go? Anything we didn't cover today that you wanted to to mention? No, I just that if people want to get in touch with me, I'm not on the social pipes so much anymore. Um, and that's purely, you know, probably a little bit strategic, but also because I, I find it takes away my attention from the family. So um, if people want to get in touch, uh, I can send you my email, Chris, and, and email is the best way. Yeah. We'll, pop that, we'll pop that in the show notes and, and people can get through you the, uh, the more traditional ways. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, mate. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, for everyone else, thanks for listening and uh, we'll catch you in the next one. Bye for now. Hey, guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the EP Growth Podcast. If you would like to be mentored by one of the high-performing exercise physiologists at Hunter Rehab and Health, please visit epgrowthpodcast.com and click on the mentoring page to learn more. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends so we can ultimately grow this profession together. Thank you.